Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. Y'all doing all right? Yeah. All right. Sounds like it. Kind of mostly. Yeah, I'm sure glad you're here today. It's good to be back after a couple of weeks out of the, the pulpit. I understand Mike did a tremendous job the last two weeks. Good job for him. I heard... I heard three things about last week, a lot of amens and hallelujahs, that's two. And the other I heard was he was, he was actually short, like y'all got out early, so you owe some time to the kitty, right? I'm, I'm here to collect, okay? So, uh, no, but I, he did a great job. I've had a lot of questions about how I enjoyed vacation and where I went. Uh, well, I mostly went to my office for about eight hours a day each day. We, I have a thing with our, our personnel committee, our deacons. It's kind of a work vacation. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm here working. I'm not in the pulpit, uh, but I am taking some time to just kind of look out and think of things a little bit bigger and get ahead on some things. I think mostly this, I think they saw, boy, if we could just give you a vacation from the staff. And so they're, they're trying to give me a, 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 a break from them. And some of that, uh, that's kind of supposed to be funny. Y'all are looking like it's real <laughs> serious. I'm realizing this isn't going, going well. But, you know, some of them respect that time and, and others not so much. Like, like Dale will come sit outside my office and, and he'll text me and say, uh, I, I, I'm out here. And he, he did that Tuesday. He said, I'm, I'm out here. And I texted him back and I said, I hope you brought a sack lunch. And, uh, you, you know, I just, I just leave him out there and I'll call Rhonda. My sister, is Dale gone? And boy, if he's gone, I run to the car and get out of here. So, uh, yeah, I, I've been here. I've been around, got to be involved with a lot of the, the Love 804 things the last couple of Saturdays we've been doing out at Midlothian and, and preparing for yesterday. If no, a lot of you were involved in that. Thank you for being there. Man, we've, gone out and door to door and we've cleaned up the area around there and uh, yesterday we had this big uh, breakfast this is international pancakes I don't know if all these nations eat pancakes I think we just do stuff to the pancakes like we throw cinnamon on it and say it's from Mexico I mean, that's, I think that's some of what we did. But now the Korean pancakes, I tasted all of them. That was my role yesterday, quality control, uh, serv- serving the Lord that way, one pancake at a time. And, and, I, and I ate all of them, and I was surprised how much I enjoyed the Korean pancakes because they put vegetables. Now, if you just think of it, I don't, I don't want vegetables in my... Are you kidding? No, anything but vegetables. They, but so I'm, I'm like on my sixth Korean vegetable pancake. And, uh, and, and, and one of the husbands of, of the Korean ladies cooking these pancakes, man, all those vegetables are so good. And the pooch, <coughs> pooch, what's pooch? I mean, I've eaten like six of these now. I, I Google it. I don't know what pooch is. I, it went down good. I don't know after that what happens. But uh, I, I, try the Korean pancakes if you can. So, but uh, we've had we've had a good couple weeks here at the Heights out in our out in our community. That's good, and it, and it is good to be back here today. Hey, I don't know about you. Do we have any Bible lovers in here today? Y'all love your Bible. Love the Bible. That's good. That's, that's a good response. Very exciting. Man, I, I, I love my Bible, and I tell you what, I am proud of it. And when I say that, and I don't mean this in a, com, like in a competitive or we're better than you way, but, but I am proud of my Bible as it, as it maybe would be compared to uh, other religions and their holy writings, their sacred text. I'm, I'm proud of it specifically because of its realness. It's, it's real. It deals with real problems. It deals with real issues. It gives you a real look at things. I mean, part of what I mean when I say that is, you know, if this is just a a book of propaganda, come to our religion, it's the best one. It puts things in here you wouldn't normally think of as promotional. Like it doesn't protect its heroes, does it? I mean, mean, whether you're talking about a David or an Abraham, a Moses, a, a Peter, Man, it shows these guys their love for God, their faith in God, the great works they did for God. And then you turn the page and there's their sin. There's their failure because that's real, right? It, it, I, I can be living greatly for God and still struggle, still fail, still miss the mark. The, the Bible will put forward ideas and, and then the Bible will challenge those ideas. 
I mean, you'll see people struggling with the things. I mean, if I'm promoting our God's the best, I'm not going to show people struggling with what God has said or with what God has done. For for instance, a, a very simple, common theme all the way through the Bible is that the godly are blessed, the godly are rewarded, and the ungodly suffer. It's not a rule, but it is a principle of life. Now, Psalm chapter 1 would be a good example of that principle. If you want to turn and look at it, read. it's only a few verses long, and you'll see what it's, hey, here's, okay, here's the godly life and what it looks like. Here's the ungodly. So there's this principle of life. But then you have God's people look at that and say, God, I don't get it. God, I, I don't see it. I'm, I'm struggling a little bit here with that being true. As a matter of fact, I, I think one of the great passages, there's multiple that I really see this, is Psalm 73. The, the psalmist there, and I, I'm not going to read the whole psalm. It's, it's a long psalm, but I want to read a, a few verses. You get a feel for it. The psalmist is saying, I almost lost my faith. I, I almost stopped following you because I don't see your little principle God at work in this world. I, I see quite the opposite. Listen to how he says this. Psalm 73 I'm going to begin reading in verse 2. As for me, I almost lost my footing. I almost lost my faith. I almost lost my religion. I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. Why is this? Well, I envied the proud. When I saw them prosper despite their wickedness, they seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. Now, that's not really true. I mean, that's an exaggeration, isn't it? That they have problems, but that's how it feels sometimes, isn't it? Man, they don't love God. They're not serving God. It looks like they're having the best time in life. Verse 6, they wear pride like a jeweled necklace. They clothe themselves with cruelty. I love verse (laughs) 7. These fat cats have everything. Now again, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. But you know what? If you're trying to live for the Lord and you're believing, hey, the Bible tells me the, the righteous are rewarded and the ungodly suffer. Well, Lord, I'm not seeing it. Here's these people. They don't love you. They mock you. Looks like they're doing just fine. And it's not just what he sees in them. He also points back on the godly life. He, he, he says this in verse uh, 13. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Ooh, I wonder how many of us have thought that. Did I go to church this week? I read my Bible a couple of and look what happened. This stinks. Did I, did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. Now, I'm, I'm guessing that's a little bit of an exaggeration. But that's what it feels like, right? That's real. That, that, this is real talk, isn't it? Isn't that, no, no, we got to hide this. We got to make everybody think that whatever God says, we're all happy with it. I mean, here, right here in the scripture, God says, I'm not happy with this. But then he gets it resolved. And he gets it resolved with eternity. L- listen, listen to this, verse 13. No, no, no. Verse 17. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood, I finally remembered the destiny of the wicked. Truly, you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. Verse 23, yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. So there's this principle. But God, I struggle with always seeing how the principle works. To be honest with you, Lord, I see it kind of working opposite sometimes. But then it kind of all gets resolved in thinking about destiny, right? In, in, in thinking about eternity. I mean, eternity is where justice is done. Eternity is where wrongs are made right. Eternity is where the righteous are rescued and they're finally rewarded. That doesn't mean nothing good can happen right here, right now. It just means ultimately it is resolved in eternity. Eternity, heaven, that's our great hope. That, that, that's what gets us through today. Romans chapter 8, Paul says the same thing in, in, in uh, the New Testament. He says, for I consider that the sufferings that I'm going through in this present time are not worthy of being compared. They're not comparable. If I could take all my anger, my frustration, my hurt and pain, if I could put that on a scale and try to measure it, try to compare it to, to what I get in eternity, to the glory 
that is coming. You, you can't say, oh, glory's ten times better. Oh, glory's a hundred times better. Than, you can't compare it. It's so far outweighs. It's so far. There's no comparison. So that's our hope. Over and over and over. Old Testament, New Testament. We're just struggling with the difficulty of life. Or... As we've now walked this, this summer through First and Second Peter, Peter's writing a group of people that are also suffering, not necessarily because of the difficulty of life. They're suffering because they're being attacked as believers. They're, they're being attacked as followers of Jesus Christ. And, and yes, yeah, some of that might just be being mocked, made fun of, but they're also being arrested. They're also being fed to animals. I mean, you would consider that suffering if you were being fed to an animal, Right. Just a good hearty yes there would, yeah, that we're, you're still with me. Yeah, that's a bad day. You're suffering kind of. So he writes them and Peter joins the rest of scripture and saying, hey, here's, here's how we get through this. We, we, we focus on eternity. Now, now here's what I love about this. And that, that has been the message of first and second Peter is the way you get through today is you focus on that day, right? You, you focus on that day that Jesus and all his glory is revealed to the world. That's our transition into eternity. So we focus on that same message, but he is telling a group of believers that in 66 AD. He's answering a question. He's answering a struggle, a frustration that they have. Now think of that. What they're struggling with is, where's Jesus? I thought he was coming back. And they're asking that question after three decades. Where does that leave you and me? I mean, they were wondering where Jesus is after three decades. Hey, guys, try two millennia. And would you believe that Peter's answer to them after 30 years of waiting on where's your Jesus, I think is not only appropriate for us, I think it fits us better today than it did even them when he gave it to them. Peter has an answer for all of us as we, as this great hope is being given to us, but guys, we're waiting forever for it to get here. Let's see how Peter answers that to them and answers that for us. Because if that's our great hope, then we need to know what we're doing in all this waiting. So 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter, go to the end of your Bible, Revelation, back up a few pages, you'll be through Jude, a couple letters from John, and then you'll be in 2 Peter chapter 3, and you will notice there that that is the end of 2 Peter. We will have finished studying First and Second Peter, but we're not done. Because next week I'm going to do something I've never done when I, when I walk through a book of the Bible. There's an appendix. I guess that's what we would say. There's an appendix next week. We're going to come back and we're going to look at two Old Testament stories, real favorite ones, ones everybody loves. Next week's going to be David and Goliath. That's a favorite story, isn't it? Yeah, David slinging that stone, that whole thing with the giant. Uh, we're going to look at David and Goliath next week. But what we're going to do is we're going to take what we've learned in First and Second Peter... And we're going to see how David lived those things. I think what you're going to be hopefully encouraged and challenged by is how Peter, uh, uh, I mean David, a thousand years before this was written, was living these principles as he approached that giant. So I think we're going to have a, a lot of fun with it. I, I hope we are. That's what my plan is. If we don't have a lot of fun, well, it, it'll be over next week. Second uh, Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is my second letter to you, dear friends, and in both of them I've tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the Holy Prophets, Old Testament, said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded, Gospels, through your apostles, the letters. He just kind of walked through the whole Bible right there. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come. Mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. You know what they're saying? The sun comes up, the sun goes down. The sun comes up, the sun comes down. You know, one week becomes another week. One year becomes another year. Where's your Jesus? Verse 5, they deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago. By the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from the water and he surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. 
And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. The first judgment, the flood, the water was destroyed by water. The second judgment, the one to come, it'll be destroyed with fire. They're being kept up for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpected. Let me back up. But the day of the Lord will come. If you don't leave here with anything else, you really need to leave here with that. The day of the Lord will come. That is a promise. That is a guarantee. I know we've taken like 1,984 trips around the sun since Jesus ascended into heaven with that promise. But we are being reminded here, the Lord will come. This day, this event will happen. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy godly lives you should live. Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. Remember those three words, hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. Now, that should be a little bit of a concern. God basically just said, I'm going to torch your house. But we are looking forward to a new heaven. A new, I'm getting a new house out of this. We're getting a new heaven, a new earth that he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with wisdom God gave him. Speaking of these things in all of his letters, some of his comments are hard to understand. (laughs) Hey, hey, have you ever thought, boy, I find the Bible hard to understand sometimes? Well, you're in pretty good company because that's exactly what Peter just said. Boy, the Bible can be hard to understand. I mean, saying that of Paul, that's pretty good company that we're in, right? You know, when people say, boy, the Bible's hard to understand, I I always want to remind them, just focus on the parts that are easy to understand because that's about 90% of it. Don't get caught up thinking the Bible is just filled with mystery and clouded and, boy, you can't see it. No, most of it is really absolutely straightforward and pretty clear to understand. But yes, as Peter says here, boy, some of what Paul writes is hard to understand. And those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of Scripture. And this will result in their destruction. You already know these things, dear friends, so be on your guard, then, then you will not be carried away by the errors of these wicked people and lose your own secure footing. Hey, that's the second time we've heard that phrase. Remember Psalm 73? I almost lost my footing. And now here Peter is at the end of the letter saying, hey, you know what I've tried to give you is what you need so you don't lose your footing, so you don't lose your faith. Rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All glory to him, both now and forever. Amen. You know, uh, Paul, or excuse me, Peter, opens the first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. The translation I just read uses the word uh, friends, but it's the word beloved, the word beloved, probably not the most important word we just read in chapter 3, but in, in chapter 1, verse 17, he opens the letter saying, beloved. And, and what does beloved mean? That's not a word we use a lot. It means loved ones, right? As a matter of fact, the, kind of the uniqueness of the word loved ones is it kind of pulls in friends and family. You know, loved ones, that can be family, the ones we're really, really close to. But we've got friends, right, that are as close to us as as family. And so the word beloved, the word loved ones kind of pulls in. This is the group of people I so highly value in my heart. And, and Peter refers to these people as he's writing as, man, you're my loved ones. Now he doesn't call them loved ones in chapter two or, or three or four or five. And interestingly enough, he doesn't open the second letter using that. Second Peter chapter one, you don't see him refer to them as beloved. But when we get to chapter three, 
he again refers to his audience in verse 1, verse 8, verse 14, verse 15, verse 17. Five times now he uses the word loved ones, loved ones, my loved ones. What's happening? Why is he going nuts with this word? You know, remember 2 Peter 1, verse 14, when Peter said, hey, the Lord's told me I'm going to die real soon. And within a year of writing amen at the end of 2 Peter chapter 3, within a year he'll be crucified upside down by the Nero, uh, by the emperor Nero. And so I think as he is finishing this last chapter, it's more than finishing a letter, isn't it? He's, he's finishing a life. He's finishing a ministry. He is, he is closing the final chapter on some relationships that are powerfully, intimately important to him. He loves them so much. He yearns for them so much to know Christ, to, to, to obey and walk with Christ, to hold on to him to the very end. Man, Peter knows what it is to fail. Peter knows what it is to fail between here and the end. And he wants so much for them not to experience that failure. He wants so much for them to be faithful all the way to the end. And it's, I just hear the passion and his love for them to hold on to Christ. You know, as I, as I hear Peter doing this in chapter 3, I, I can't help but think of John 21. That's the, the end of that gospel of John and, 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 and Peter is on the beach. He's at, he's at the beach uh, on, the, on the shore there of the Sea of Galilee and, and Jesus has already been crucified. He's already been resurrected. Peter's already seen him a couple of times and in John 21, we come to one of the final appearances of Jesus before Peter, before the disciples, before he ascends back into heaven and if you remember that story on the beach, three times Jesus looks right at Peter and he says, do you love me? Do you remember the story? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times Peter says, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And all three times Jesus says this, then feed my sheep. Is that a word just for Peter? Is that a word just for pastors? Or is that a word for people who say, I love you, Lord? Oh, how important. How important is it that you and I voice our love to God, right? That we actually say, Jesus, I love you. Or we sing, Jesus, I love you. But we all need to hear Jesus saying, when we say to him verbally, I love you, we need to hear Jesus saying to us, then feed my sheep. If you love me, then love my people. Feed them. What does it mean? Is he talking about bread and water here? Hey, you know what? It might be bread and water. But I think in the historical context of what he's writing in First and Second Peter, the context of John 21, I think what Jesus is doing is saying, help my people get to the finish line. If you love me, then love my people. Come alongside them, encourage them, help them. Feed them with the strength, the motivation, the encouragement to make it all the way to the finish line. Who did you feed this week? I'm really not trying to be in everybody's face. (laughs) But Jesus kind of says over and over and over, if you're saying that you love me, then who did you serve? Who did you help take another step toward that? Because it's hard believing, isn't it? It's hard walking with Christ through this world. The scripture doesn't say, come to me and everything's roses. No, the scripture is very real. You come to Christ today, it's a hard journey to the finish line. And so Jesus says, hey, if you love me, then you're going to love everybody who's come to me. And you're going to figure out ways you can come alongside people, believers in your life, and help them get the rest of the way. Who are you going to feed this week? Now, 2 Peter chapter 3 is is helping us with a a promise. Jesus has promised he's coming back, right? It's been a long time. Now, before we dive into, hey, how's that promise working? I think we do need to remind ourselves that Jesus and God, they, they actually do fulfill promises. 
If we're kind of wondering how this is going to work out, God is batting about a thousand on promise filling. Because not every promise is still something in the future. We have a chance to look historically at promises that were made and when they should have been fulfilled and every single time. For instance, God promises that the Messiah is going to be crucified. Now, honestly, if I'm the Messiah, that's not a promise I want fulfilled. But in Psalm 22, in that promise written about a 1,000 B.C., it is describing in incredible detail what the crucifixion is going to look like, the piercing of hands and feet, the soldiers gambling for his clothing. You would think somebody in Psalm 22 was watching what happened to Jesus and describing it, except that it was written a 1,000 years before it happened. Not only was it written a 1,000 years before it happened, it was written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before crucifixion existed. So the writer of Psalm 22 would have no way to know that here's all these things that are going to happen at the crucifixion, but here's the promise, but his bones won't be broken. We'll say, well, what, what difference does it make at that point? Well, that's how you end a crucifixion. As a matter of fact, both of the people that Jesus was crucified with had their legs broken. When they came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs because God filled a promise. Made a promise, thousand years later he fulfilled it. Made a promise, 725 B.C., the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. 725 years later, so that you and I could identify it, guess where the Messiah was born? Bethlehem, that's an easy one. We do the whole Christmas thing, right? All right, come on now. And, and, and you know what, folks? Not every promise in Scripture is about the first or the second coming of the Lord, although the first coming of the Lord shows us 62 promises fulfilled. I just gave you two of them. Two of 62 promises. But there's also promises to David, to, to Moses, to Abraham. There's promises to Israel. And you know what? God fulfills his promises. And here's the crazy thing. He fills them exactly like he spoke them. You see, when you're waiting on a promise for a real long time and you're kind of, I mean, some of us are like this, right? We're really for God. We don't want him to fail in the eyes of the world. So if we see God failing, we're going to try to clean that up and, and make it presentable so the world will like him like we do, right? And God says, you know what? I don't need you to clean up my promises, so when, when it's taking a real long time for a promise to, well, we start to spiritualize it. And we start to make it metaphor, metaphorical. Well, it's symbolic of this. And yet, when you look back at promises God's fulfilled, he fills them exactly like they're written. Hey, that should say something to us as we're reading things about what the second coming is going to look like. It's going to look like just how it was written. So God's batting a thousand on promises. So while it's hard to wait, he's worthy of being waited on, right? This isn't somebody that has failed us over and over and over. This isn't somebody that's batting 500 on promises. No, he fills every single promise. And so he's worthy of being waited on. And I think that's important to know because waiting is hard. And as Peter starts to deal with here in verse 3, waiting can be particularly hard if somebody's actually making fun of you. For waiting. I don't know. I don't know that I've dealt with that a whole bunch. I don't know if you have. Obviously, the people Peter is writing to, they're dealing with that. You know, there's a group of people, they, they've heard them. They say, oh, you're waiting on the return of the Lord. How's that working for you? What was that, like 30 years ago that he said he was coming back? And you know, and you and I are left, uh, yeah, it has been 30 years, but I'm going to wait right here. Hey, how long do you wait on somebody before you start to doubt how long do you wait on somebody before you start to make other, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 2,000 years? I mean, th- th- these mockers kind of have believers in a corner. Yeah, it's been a long time and I don't, I don't, I don't really have an, an answer for, for that, for, for where he is and why I've been standing here on the street corner for 33 years, much less 2,000. And, and so, but Peter says to them, now listen, as far as these mockers go, you need to remind them that God created this place and God's going to bring judgment. He's done it once before. They're forgetting that God actually has shown up before. God actually has brought judgment before. Now, I'm not talking today about creation. I'm not talking about Noah's flood. And we're not going to go over those things today. But I do want you to note that in the passage we just read, Peter 
in the first century refers to these things that happened many years before, centuries, millennia before. He refers to them as historical facts. So, such historical facts, such historical reality that he's encouraging how they live and respond today to those facts. And there is absolutely nothing in science and history that says that's wrong. He said, well, no, wait, wait a minute, Pastor. Yeah, yeah, there is. I mean, we know a lot more scientifically now, right? There's the whole evolution thing. I mean, we know that's, you know, we, we've got other, I mean, you can't really argue with science. I mean, the Bible's important and all. Uh, just a quick reminder. I said I'm not talking about creation and all that today. Everything we have from science is called a word we no longer use. It's called a theory. We've totally forgotten that. It's being taught as a fact when it's not a fact. I'm not just saying that because I'm a Baptist preacher and that's what preachers are supposed to say. It is a theory that has not been proved. It's kind of interesting. In my lifetime, I saw the transition. When I was coming up through middle school and into high school, they still would attach the word theory to it. And and somewhere along the way, they just decided, we're just going to take the word theory off. No new evidence there, there's search. You don't have to trust me. Google, where's the big evidence that moved it from being a theory to a fact? There is no evidence. There was no big find that moved it that way. We just decided that's how it's going to be taught. And man, look at to where it's come today. You're utterly ignorant. You don't even belong in academia if you would believe something so foolish like an intelligent person actually put all this here. You have to believe it just happened. Hey, granted, they don't accept what we accept. Not arguing that. Hey, there's a lot of reasons to look at evolution. Not arguing that. Just reminding, it's a theory, not a fact. It's a theory. It's a theory of people who want to know how this all got here without there being a God. They want to remove God from the equation. I personally think think it takes more faith to believe that than to believe what Scripture is giving us. But the bottom line, simple thing here. Okay, so people are making fun of me because I believe in Jesus. I believe he's going to return. I don't have to fight him. I don't have to debate him. Peter says, hey, listen, just look at him. Just remember, God owns this place. He's coming back. He'll handle it. They answer to him. Now, Peter then turns to deal with the, the, the bigger issue that all people, all, all people of faith are going to deal with, and that is, okay, so where is the Lord? Actually, I'm kind of asking that question myself. I mean, right, there's mockers out there, but in my quietness of my heart, ooh, it has been a lot, a lot of trips around the sun, Jesus, without you coming back. You know, when you consider that First and Second Peter, their context, what are they about? They're about people suffering. They're about people hanging on, trying to hold on to Jesus until that day. And, and so Peter's answer in First and Second Peter is look toward that day. Stay focused on that day. That's the big answer. But it's hard because it's been so long. And so Peter, I really see chapter 3 as kind of the high point of both letters. The big point of both letters. Hanging on is tough. And here's how you do it. And he's giving an answer when we're waiting and waiting and waiting. And so if, if chapter 3 is kind of the, the pinnacle, I find verses 8 to 10, the pinnacle of chapter 3. And one phrase is the pinnacle of both letters. This is what I need right now as I'm standing here on a street corner waiting. Peter says, hey, you know, God's not using the same watch we are. God's not using it. One day to the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. That, by the way, is not a code. That, that's not a code that we're then to pick up and run into other prophetic passages. Okay, well, don't, let me see if I can do the math here. Jesus said three days here, so does that, does that mean 3,000 years? That's not what Peter's saying here. This is not a code to breaking prophecy. He's just communicating God is completely outside of time. That's hard to grasp because you and I know nothing but being completely inside of time. We know no ability to measure anything without time. We're, we measure everything with time. We, we, time is, is what we all answer to. Time is, is what we feel. God is completely outside. God created time. He can hold it in his hand. It's an object that he made. 
He doesn't answer to it. He's not measured by it. He doesn't have to respond to it. Now, simple phrase. Thank you, Peter, for reminding me of that or explaining that to me. I find that theologically helpful. I find it emotionally not helpful one bit. Wait, so wait a minute. What, so what are you telling me? I mean, so how many, how many thousands of years is it going to be? I mean, remember, he's writing people that are hurting. They're, they're dying. They're being arrested. They're suffering. They're hiding. They're living from meal to meal. And, and, and Peter's big answer, oh, you know, a day is like a thousand years. That doesn't help me. You know what? As a matter of fact, you know what makes me question here is does God care? Okay, super. God's not feeling time like I am. But doesn't God know that I do feel time? I do feel 24 hours. I do feel a, a year. Does God care? Oh, folks, he cares. He cares so much about rescuing the righteous, rewarding the righteous. This is not an issue of not caring. As a matter of fact, it's because he cares that we're waiting. What did Peter introduce to us here? A very profound idea. God's being patient because he doesn't want anyone to be destroyed in the judgment. Is that, is that news to you? Is that a new thought Because I I feel like a lot of times in church, outside the church, we're left looking at God like he's really angry. And and he's looking. He's watching you to see when he can catch you. He's watching you. Ah, there you go. Straight to hell for you. Like God gets some kind of buzz out of that. And you know, the scripture actually says, no, no, no. I I get zero joy out of seeing somebody judged. I get zero joy out of, out of somebody landing in, in hell. Now, that's Peter. That's a New Testament passage. You know, a lot of times, don't we, even in the church, kind of think that God got nicer in the New Testament? Don't we? I mean, the Old Testament, whoo, God was, man, he was raining down locusts on people and hailstorms. There's that whole Sodom and Gomorrah with the fire. Well, there's the flood. Whoo, God, he's mean God in the Old Testament. Hmm. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. Look at this verse. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Man, I just want to see him turn. I want to see them repent. I want to see them come into what I have for them. I want them to know my love. I want want them to know my reward. I want them to know heaven, not hell. I get nothing out of people going to hell. Just one more verse, just hopefully to establish a little bit. I've not plucked out a couple of weird verses somewhere. No, this is over and over and over. 1 Timothy 2, 4, God our Savior who desires that everyone. Hey, you want to know something funny? We've got some people he, we'd like them not to save, don't we? Huh? I, I can, hey, I prefer if that verse said mostly. <laughs> no, God desires everyone. The person you would least like to see in heaven, God would sure like to see him there. Hey, is there a God? Yes, there is. Is that God going to bring judgment? Yes, he is. Does that judgment mean that people will go to hell? Yes, it does. As a matter of fact, kind, precious, gentle Jesus actually teaches that the great majority of people will go to hell. Do do those realities mean that God is mean? Do do those realities mean that that God likes seeing people judged? that, That he gets that buzz out of zapping it to somebody that really has it coming to him? No, folks, God's heart is to see them rescued from that. So much so that he sent his own son. He sent his very own son to communicate that love and ultimately to pay the penalty for our sin, to receive the... the, Listen, justice demands that wrath be poured out on wrong. Justice demands that. And so God has provided two places where his wrath is going to be poured out. Number one, at the cross. Number two, we just read briefly about it. Revelation says a whole lot more. His wrath will be poured out on this world. He's going to torch the place. Did you know that's love? See, you and I have a hard time thinking, don't we? How does a loving God send people to hell? Folks, love demands justice. Not all of us. A lot of us in here, though, are, 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 are parents. In the name of love, are you okay with somebody raping your daughter? Well, nobody's perfect. 
I know that shouldn't have happened, but I, you know, I'm, I'm a loving person. Really? Is that what love would lead you to do if your child was raped? How, how about if your child was murdered? Oh, you know what? Let's, let's not go to these big bad illustrations. A lot of you moms and dads lose your mind if somebody lies about your precious little one. If somebody doesn't honor your little one like they need to be honored or get the position you think they need. Do you really? I mean, love drives us to almost be nuts, right? I mean, we don't even matter if we're right. Yeah, because that's what love does. Love demands that wrongs be dealt with. Love demands lies be righted. Love demands justice. Now, we all fancy ourselves in America today as a big people out for justice. No, we're not. We don't want justice because, folks, justice means judgment. And judgment means there's consequences for my little lies, for my anger, for my sexual immorality, for my drunkenness, my selfishness. Oh, I don't, I don't, you want justice? Hey, the justice is coming and that doesn't make God mean that makes him loving. God cares that his children, because if we've believed on him, right? What is John 1, 12? To all who believe on me, he gives the right to become children of God. God cares what happens to his children. And he's being patient. He's provided a way. And now in patience, he is waiting till the most people can be rescued from that. Patience. Do you see how God just turned the table on us? I mean, what are we talking? We're talking about waiting on God to fulfill this promise. So I'm kind of anticipating Peter's going to lead us to a place. Hey, God keeps his promises and there's this good thing he's going to do. So let's all be patient on God, right? God turns the table on us. No, 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 no. You're, what, you think you're being patient for me? No, you're not being patient on me. I'm being patient for you. Now, the way this passage reads, a lot of it is about the unbeliever, isn't it? But could I point you to verse 12 again? How can we hurry along the day of God by walking in godliness and holiness? Perhaps what God is being patient on, a part of what God is being patient on, is his church. The church that says, I love you, Lord. The church that says, I believe in you, Lord. The church that has come to the Lord and then leaves here week after week and goes out and lives just like the world. And actually, just like the people in verse 3, we mock the return of the Lord because I continue in my sin as if I'm never going to deal with a consequence for it. I'm not paying any... Gosh, I've done this more than two or... I don't even know how many times I've done this and I... I haven't paid any consequence for that, so I just continue right on in my sin. God's being patient because of what we might miss out in the utter joy and the reward. This isn't a heaven and hell issue. The cross will cover my sin. My, My abusive sin that mocks God's patience, the cross will cover that. That doesn't mean I don't miss out. I don't lose something in the reward, in the joy of his return. So maybe God is being patient on you. Patient on me to quit playing a game. And actually say, hey, what does it actually mean to follow Christ? What does that look like tomorrow at work, at school, on the team, with my bills, in dealing with pain and dealing with frustration? Maybe God is being patient because if I come right now, You're going to miss. And then, of course, we know the passage clearly. It says it twice. He's he's waiting on the unsaved. He's patient. He's patiently waiting till they grab a hold of the gospel because it's not his desire that they land in hell. And if he comes right now, they're going to land in hell. And so in patience, he waits. I'm 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 waiting on God to give me evidence. Hey, you know what? There's there's absolutely nothing wrong. Faith, nowhere in Scripture is described as being ignorant. There's nothing wrong with wanting to understand, wanting to get answers. What, is, what does this mean? How does that work? But, but while it's okay to have a process, could I, rem, could I remind you, you've, from day one, you've had more evidence than you need to come to Christ. The human eye, one object on the entire planet, the human eye makes evolution a joke. 
Just the human eye. Because there's no process by which evolution makes an eye work. It either works on the day of its creation. What do you call a blind animal? Dinner. Wait, wait, wait you, you think, is that, is that funny, a joke? What's survi- what, survival of the fittest? That's what evolves. The human eye makes a mockery of, of evolution. The, the, the rising of the sun, the setting of the sun, the birth, birth. We call it a miracle. It's actually not a miracle, but boy, it's pretty incredible design, isn't it? You say, well, yeah, that doesn't prove the, the, the Jehovah God. That doesn't prove the Judeo-Christian God. Okay, so there's an intelligent, the scripture, the uniqueness of this book, which we're going to, we're actually going to spend about four or five weeks, September, October, understanding what we have in this book. But just the uniqueness of this book, the evidence of evidence, not, not faith, evidence of it, you have more than you need to realize that Jesus is the Son of God and what it means to come to Him. What, what are you doing with God's patience? Are you using it to believe? Are you using it to turn and to grow in, in holiness? What are you doing with God's patience? Are we mocking it? What did you do with God's patience this past week? What did you look at in your life, in your doubts, in your fears, in your anger, in your frustration, in your relationships? What did you look at in your life and say, man, I've got another week. God is being patient with me. Here's what I'm going to do with that patience. You know, in, in I guess some kind of God algorithm, <laughs> God knows how far his patience will go. And when it has reached the most people, and when those two things intersect, there will be a day when God says, my patience will no longer produce anything. And that'll be the day. Until then, if, I mean, we woke up today, we have today, so God, my, God knows my patience is still producing fruit. But there will be a day when God says there will be no more fruit. There's no further reason. Tomorrow, my patience tomorrow will not bring anything else. I don't know when that day is. But that day God has promised will come. So Peter says, while you're waiting. (laughs) Think of that. Just that phrase as he ends these eight chapters of these two letters. While you're waiting. My dad was just fed to a lion in the Roman circus yesterday while you're waiting. They're going to see Peter crucified upside down in the Roman circus while you're waiting. They're living from meal to meal, hiding from the authorities while you're waiting. Don't be a mocker, be a believer. Do you believe he's coming back? Do you believe it matters how we live? Do you believe there's a God? What are you doing to resolve these questions? Don't be a mocker, be a believer. Don't be a doubter, be an anticipator. But folks, if I, if I leave First and Second Peter with anything, it's that here's what needs to happen in my life. Here's what needs to change. I need to be anticipating the day of the Lord every single day. Yeah, it's been 1,900 and roughly 84 years around the sun, but I need to live today as if it might be today. And I need to not live for where I am, I need to live for where I'm going. Heaven, holiness. You know, I, uh, we, we just, I mentioned this last time, we, we just had our second grandchild and uh, we have four children. And so that means six times I, I've had the, the excitement and the fun of entering the ninth month. You know what I'm talking about? You know, this is the month. This is when it happens. And, and, you know, not so much in six, seven. As a matter of fact, in six, seven, and eight, you're hoping not, right? But boy, you enter that nine month, that nine, and now all of a sudden, it's, it's, you know, it might be today, might be today. That's a lot of fun, isn't it? I mean, it's, 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 it's this huge, exciting thing that is going to totally change life. And you're just totally looking for every day. Is this the day? But I've noticed something, and I've had six chances to notice this. That while you're waiting, you still mow the yard. You still go to work. You still go to the grocery store. You still pay bills. You, you, you keep doing all of the things that need to be done. But you do every one of those things 
is today the day. And it's not just a neat, warm, fuzzy feeling. There's bags packed by the front door. The hospital has been alerted. You've made, the room is ready. I mean, you have physically moved to change things and get things in line and in order in case today is the day. That's an incredibly perfect illustration for what Peter wants for you and for me. That every day, yes, hey, I've got to walk in holiness and in godliness as I pay bills, as I mow the yard, as I go to work, as I deal with people I like, as I deal with people not so much. As we do these things in holiness and in godliness, we walk. We anticipate. And folks, that anticipation changes everything. As a matter of fact, when I think about what Peter has said over two letters, when I am every day thinking, is today the day? Is today the day? You know what it does? It makes me sharp. What's the word we've heard Peter use over and over in these two letters? Be sober. Be sober. Remember what I've said? This isn't a drinking issue when he uses that word. What's he saying? Be sharp. Man, today's the day. I'm not going to be sloppy. I'm, I'm not going to be careless. I'm not going to be kind of, sort of with my life and with my belief. I want to be sharp if today is today. I not only want to be sharp, I want to be excellent. Man, Peter threw that word out there. We live so much of our faith is just enough. Good, good, enough. What, how much do you do this to be good and excellent? Man, if Jesus comes back today, I don't want to be just enough. I want to be excellent and holy. Peter ends this letter the same way he started it in 1 Peter chapter 1. Be holy as God is holy. How much did you think about holiness this past week? Could I suggest if you didn't think about it one time, it's because you're not living in light of any reality that Jesus is coming back. You see, folks, if I don't think about Jesus coming back, I'm not going to be sharp. I'm not going to be excellent. I'm not going to be holy. And that is going to make the journey from here to that day just a lot harder. What are you doing with God's patience? Because there is a day, not that it runs out, There's a day that his patience will serve no more purpose. What will you do with God's patience this week? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, we ask for your help. Lord, it it has been a lot of trips around the sun. You know that. I know you're not feeling that time, but Lord, you know we are. And in feeling that time, we get stuck in a rut of of Monday becomes Tuesday, August becomes September, 2018, Lord, we're pretty much anticipating becomes 2019, and and it just goes on and on and on. And Lord, I, I just trust, Lord, that most of us in here would say that we believe you're coming back, but we live so very little in light of it. And we lose so much of what makes us sharp, what makes us excellent, what leads us to holiness. Oh God, you were patient with every person in this room yesterday. And you were patient in allowing us to wake up today. God, I don't, we don't want to waste it. I pray every one of us is thinking, what do I need to do with God's patience? How do I not mock it? How do I praise him for it? Holy Spirit, would you help us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.